0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 3.
1: Well, we're in the epistle to the Hebrews, and we're in session four. I have to tell you that I am having a great time researching this book. Um... We decided to redo it because we wanted DVDs and so forth, but I also began to realize by doing a little digging that we hadn't previously taught the half of it. In fact, as we go through probably 50 different commentaries, we discover some interesting things is that most of them miss the core issues in this book, strangely enough. And so uh, it's, it's well known to be a problem book. It causes many people confusion. And we'll be dealing with that, of course, but there are all kinds of aspects to this that I just find thrilling. And so it's a, this, is a, this is a fun time. Well, Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, is known as the riddle of the New Testament. There are many, many people that get confused by it, many different views about it. First of all, it starts off about the, the authorship. It's anonymous. It's not signed. And as you understand the book, you understand why it's not signed, you also begin to understand who really did sign it, I mean, who really wrote it. It's pretty obvious to us that Paul wrote it, but it's fascinating to see how many scholars for various reasons feel it wasn't Paul. Some say it was Apollo, some Barnabas, the the list goes on and on. What's interesting, as you examine each one of these conjectures, there's no evidence for any of them. There's just some strange aspect of the fact that Paul didn't sign it. Well, there's some good reasons why Paul didn't sign it, and he even deals with that. But what do we really know about the author? We know that he had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, and he was a Hellenistic Jew, a very skilled Greek scholar, writing to Jewish believers who were under persecution. That's obvious by the context. So, so far, no problem. We'll, we'll touch on the authorship as we go, but I'll mention it right now. Even though we can't prove that it was Paul, um, it's you'll you will miss a lot of what it's about if you don't understand it was Paul, strangely enough. There's another thing that turns out, if you have an amillennial view, you'll also miss the whole point of the the book. So it's interesting, those two issues, that it really was written by Paul, and you say, well, you can't prove that. I sure can come close, but that's not the point anyway. You don't have to know it was Paul to really understand the book. But once you understand the book, you begin to realize it really was Paul. I'll come back to that. But the other thing is, most churches today fall into a category of amillennialism. They don't take the millennium in Revelation 20 seriously. They think it's an allegory. Well, if you have that view, you'll miss the whole point of this book, by the way. Strangely enough. So, we'll get into that as we go. The issues are the nature of its warnings. It... Portrays systematically goes right through to show that Christ is higher and better than judaism that 's what the main that 's the tapestry in which it's painted, but that 's not the key point. The key point are five warnings that occur in the book, and we 'll talk about that. You need to understand who to whom it was written if you understand to whom it's written it'll all make sense if you 're confused about that you 'll get very confused about a number of the passages so let 's understand to whom it was written. We'll see that reconfirmed all the way through it. And also, let's understand what dangers the author is presenting for not persevering in the faith. Many people presume, well that means you can lose your salvation. That shows that they they don't understand salvation. We'll get into that as we go. What we're going to be blessed by is a composite portrait of Jesus Christ that is unparalleled in any other book in the New Testament. In Chapter One alone, it talks about the coming rule of Jesus Christ, and it begins and centers on the glory of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures what's fascinating it's the the pinnacle book on Christology, who Christ really is, and it draws entirely from the Old Testament, not the new very interesting. There are seven quotations from the set, the, the the Old Testament just in Chapter one alone and it's Incidentally, the quotes are from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, the key concept, the key theme throughout this entire book is something that the church, generally speaking of the organized denominational churches, deny. It's the kingdom is the grand central theme of all scripture. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, what are we talking about? We're talking about the promise that Gabriel gave Mary when Christ was announced by him. That her child would sit on the throne of David. Not the father's throne, that's where he is now. No, he's going to sit on David's throne. When they have the big controversy in Acts 15, and James presides over all this, what what does a Gentile have to do to be saved and all of that? He quotes, James quotes from Amos 9, this very issue. That the tabernacle of David is going to be reestablished. So, the the kingdom is a central theme. It's denied by the denominational churches. Amillennialism is regarded by many as a peripheral issue. Walter Martin used to think that was a peripheral issue. He was premillennial, but he also didn't think that was a big issue. It is a very central issue, it turns out. There's more prophecy about the millennium than any other period in the Bible. And this is going to be right in the center of it. The millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that's a key, that's a key linkage that uh, escaped me for many years. I understood the Davidic covenant. I was premillennial, but I didn't connect them. I didn't realize that one was really the fulfillment of the other. And our inheritance, yours and mine, is in view. Not our justification, I'll come, I'll come back to that, but our inheritance. And it's a result of faithfulness and obedience. So the overview of the book. It's going to deal with the major pillars of Judaism and point out that Judaism is not the answer, because it's, it's, being, it's, it's being written to Jewish believers. There are five warnings that we're going to encounter as we go through, and the issue will not be justification, it's inheritance, and I'll explain that as we go. It'll also deal with the new priesthood and the new covenant, like no other book in the entire Bible deals with. Christ is our high priest. What does that really mean? book of Hebrews is the one that's going to nail that, right in the center. It'll go through the heroes of faith and talk about being an overcomer, a metakoi. We're going to hear that word a lot as we go. Now the usual outline for the epistle of Hebrews, it starts out Jesus, the new and better deliverer in the first seven chapters. He's the God-man, better than the angels. He's better than Moses, leader better than Joshua, priest better than Aaron. All these, he's, he's better thans. Uh, constitute the the background argument by the writer. Then he gets to Calvary, the New and Better Covenant, because we have better promises, a better sanctuary, a better sacrifice, and so forth. All this is contrasting what Christ offers in contrast to Judaism. That's just the background fabric. If that's all you get from it, you haven't gotten the central message of the author. That's just the background fabric. And that's why I'm so fascinated by so many of these commentators that deal with this book, that's as far as they go, and they spend all their time trying to figure out it must have been somebody other than Paul that wrote it, rather than just listen to what it says, okay? Now the first couple of chapters, of course, what we've been through so far, but it's going to be important to summarize that before we go on. The, the Son is superior to the angels, that's the main thrust of the first chapter. By virtue of his deity, by virtue of his humanity, by virtue of the salvation he provided. In all three ways, he's obviously head of the angels. Uh, and he bringeth forth the first begotten into the world. He saith, let all the angels of God worship him. The angels worship the Son. That's the writer's way of pointing out the Son is above the The reason he's emphasizing angels, angels are very highly regarded by the Jewish believers. And that's they, they, that, that was a big deal. So the Son is even higher than the angels. And he's quoting. He, he makes his point by quoting from the Septuagint. In this case, Psalm 97. And the, the point is that the angels are commanded to worship him. Therefore, Christ is above the angels. Okay, he goes on. And unto the Son saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. This is also quoted from another psalm Thy throne, O God. See, the Father is saying, To the Son, unto thy throne, O God. This is a sentence about the Son's deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. Forever and ever. How long is his throne? Forever and ever. His reign is eternal, his reign is forever. The promise to Mary that we celebrate at Christmas in Luke 1 deals with this. The scepter of thy kingdom, and this, what kingdom are we talking about? Davidic covenant, David's kingdom. The covenant to David back in 2 Samuel is being fulfilled in view here. And so all the way through we have the Messiah God overtones. He announces his deity, he presents his throne, his kingship, his his, his perfection. All the aspects of Christ emerge just in the first chapter of this book. And, of course, it's preeminence. In fact, the first chapter ends, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Notice that phrase. That highlights the view that there's an aspect of salvation that's yet future. Are the listeners, the readers of this book saved? Yes, I'll prove it to you before we're through. Well, if they're saved, there's an aspect of their salvation that's yet future. That should alert us to the need to understand the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future, and we'll get into that. A future salvation is in view in this in this epistle. We need to understand that. Justification with respect to the everlasting life is not applicable because it's a past event. When you read John 3.18, John 5, 24. He that hath the Son, hath life. If you have Jesus Christ, you have eternal life right now. It's done deal. That's not what this is about. It's about a future aspect of that we'll come to. The fact that what's in view is future means it's not about that. You're already saved. It's not about your salvation. You need to understand that. Those justified already possess everlasting life. It's a gift. It's not a conditional inheritance. That's something Christ paid for 100%. It's yours for the receiving of it. Those who are about to inherit that he's talking about are Christians. There's something that these Christians haven't got yet. That's what he's going to focus on. What do we mean by salvation? Well, I was saved from drowning last week. Is that what he's talking about? No. I was saved from a burning building last year. Is that what he's talking about? No. When he's talking about saving, being saved in a soteriological sense, that is being saved from hell. Let's understand, the word salvation can be used for many different things. In the Bible, groups are saved from their enemies. That doesn't mean they're saved in the sense we use the term, you follow me? We're using the term in what's called the soteriological sense. And that is deliverance from hell, if you will. And that's never mentioned in the book of Hebrews, that's taken for granted, you'll discover. The salvation it's going to talk about is eschatological, that is, it's yet future. There's something in the future it's dealing with here. And it's this future aspect that we want to understand. Because it has to do with Christ's coming kingdom and the inheritance that's ours if we qualify. And so, in order to attain this future, faith and works are required, not for your salvation, not, is not for your justification, but for what's dealing here. Earl Rockemacher. every time we meet, at the, at, at once a year we all get together, he always comes in, and he says, I've been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And he does that deliberately just to stir up the discussion. And uh, that's the way his, his book is on that very subject. And uh, so. Justification—that's past tense. That's a gift from God of everlasting life that you receive by faith alone in Christ alone. How many of you have that already? If anybody' hand is not up, see me afterwards. Okay? That's pre- past tense. Present tense of salvation we call sanctification. That's a work in progress. Every one of us, me included, is a work in progress. It involves faith and the works of the believer. That's the present tense. There's also a future tense called glorification, and that's a result of all the previous. All believers will be glorified, but not equally. All of you are going to be before the judgment seat of Christ, and some are going to have five crowns, and some are going to have this. Some may have nothing but their salvation. Okay. Got in through the skin of your teeth, whatever. Large diversity of gifts. And that's what Hebrews is going to be dealing with, the epistle here. So we have past tense. Being separated from the penalty of sin. Call that justification. The present tense, separation from the power of sin. Future tense, separation from the presence of sin. Separation from the penalty of sin is called justification. Your your passport to heaven is stamped okay. You haven't changed, but Christ paid the bill. You're in. Got it? The present tense, what you're going through right now, is called sanctification, and you separate from the power of sin. Why? Because you, as a believer, can call upon the Holy Spirit and can have victory. Sin need not reign in your life anymore. For you, it's now a matter of choice. Do you choose to, d- to draw upon the Spirit or not? It's a choice issue. The future tense, of course, is when we're finally glorified and we'll be separated from the very presence of sin. That obviously ain't yet, okay? Glorification. Three tenses, past, present, future, of what we collectively call salvation. We encourage our students at the Institute not to use the word salvation because it's ambiguous, to use one of those three terms depending on what it is you're talking about. If you do that, it'll clear up all the, mis- the, the confusion that uh, comes from... Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares us righteous. Sanctification makes us righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification the growth and power of sin. Now I hope that helps. We're well, getting back to the remainder, the rest of chapter one of Hebrews. The Son's superiority was his deity because his position is unique as the head of the Davidic covenant. The angels worship the Son. They serve the Son, and He rules the kingdom. Angels never rule. Angels do not rule. One does, and He's in a lot of trouble for trying. Okay. And so the Son, of course, is enthroned. All those. And by the way, you notice. Each one of these points in chapter 1 are made by a quote from the Old Testament. The writer deliberately does not exercise his apostolic authority because every time he did it, it created riots among the Jews. He's writing this unsigned and he's not using his role as an apostle for very important reasons I'll come to. He's using it entirely building his case on drawing the scriptures that his readers have already, they, their foundation. got the picture? It's the, the authority here's the, the word. Seven Old Testament quotes from the first chapter alone. There's no apostolic authorship here. That's why Paul didn't sign it, because that would just, he wanted them to read it before signing it. So we have a whole summary of Christ in the first chapter, more excellent name, worshiped by the angels, made by the angels, sitting on the throne. All these points, Christological points, are just starting off as a warm-up in chapter 1. And uh, I said there were three points, deity, humanity, and salvation, but right in the middle of this, the first five verses of chapter 2, as we get to the next chapter, was the first warning. And the reason I'm reviewing this, I want you to understand the first warning, have it fresh in your mind, as we encounter the second one in chapter 3 tonight. Warning number one. It started, Therefore we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Therefore we... All through this epistle we have a very Pauline structure. The wherefores are therefores. That's a double edged pointer. It's saying because of what's past, this is what's coming. Therefore, what do you mean therefore? Well, I just what I just said, therefore, this. You follow you see the linkage? Paul does that all through his letters, he does it all through here. Therefore, we because of what I just said, we ought to give more earnest heed. Why? Lest at any time we should let them slip. This points back to the millennial glory of Christ and the believer's inheritance. Let them slip. The Greek term there is what's used of a boat that's been untied from its moorings. It's starting to drift away. And what it's talking about here is the loss of inheritance. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Notice the we, we, and us. The writer is putting himself in the same bucket that his readers are in. Whatever they are, he is. How shall we escape if we neglect? See, whatever they are, he is too. He's putting, he's joining them. You with me? which first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. In other words, the writer and the readers are not first generation. You follow me? They're what, you, what we might call second generation. As Paul was, of course. And uh, so... So they're not, in other words, they're not first-person witnesses in effect. Okay. The great salvation refers to future aspect, not, justi- not past justification. Okay. How, and what if we neglect the cost of neglect? The word there, Emilio, means to become apathetic. To have an attitude of indifference. We're going to discover the, 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 the tragedy of being casual about God's salvation. Remember Esau. Sold his birthright for a mess of porridge. What was his error? Getting the porridge? No. It's having disdain, not regarding it as worth more than that. That's the, that's the sin. These people were that reading this book have salvation. It's in their possession, but they're becoming indifferent to it. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you are feel that way. We'll move on. The law was given by God through Moses through angels, but although it came through angels, anyone who disobeyed it received just punishment. So, how much more will this be true if we neglect a salvation mediated through the Son Himself? In fact, this is the question that that we need to look at here. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? A Welsh preacher said, I have a question to ask. I can't answer it and you can't answer it. Even God can not answer it. This is the challenge. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are we going to do that, gang? So this leads to warning number one, which basically is get with it, don't be negligent. Did you realize you can be negligent about your salvation? Well, I thought I could, once saved, always saved. I can't lose it. That's true. But you still can be negligent and suffer for your negligence. I want you to think carefully about Paul's attitude towards life. Paul wrote the book on eternal security, Romans 8. If you're saved, once you're saved, you can't lose it. If you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God, right? Butterfingers. Paul, though, had an intense sense of urgency. He had the mentality that he was running a race, and we're going to see that. I've just picked four examples to go through here. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Know ye not that, the day which, that they which run in a race uh, run all, but one receive the prize? So run that ye may obtain. Every man that striveth for mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So Paul says, so run that ye may obtain. You mean there's something you've got to do? Not for yourself, not for your justification. C- Christ paid for that. Something else is put here. Paul says, I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beat of the air. But I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This is Paul we're talking about. Can he lose his salvation? Of course not. He knows that. What is he panicked about? Being a castaway. What was Paul afraid of? We need to understand that. In Philippians 3, it says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm always reminded about the, the race driver. Gets in the race car, and he rips off the rearview mirror and throws it out the window. It says, what's behind us doesn't matter. He's out to win. I press toward the mark for the prize. 2 Timothy, he, his final letter, he writes to his protege, he says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This is one of five crowns listed in the New Testament. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto, unto all them also that love his appearing. Wow. Just looking forward with apprehension of the Lord's, with anticipation of the Lord's coming, earns a prize. That's interesting. A crown, even. One more, Hebrews 12. We're going to count this when we get to Hebrews 12. But in any case, Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What's Paul saying? Behavior matters. Just because you're saved Doesn't complete the picture. You're saved because of what Christ did. Now it's up to you to demonstrate that to him that you're serious about him. That you care. The race that is set before us. Sovereignty of the earth is promised to man, not the angels. Christ is going to rule the earth because he became a man and fulfilled it. Fulfilled what Adam blew. Okay? God gave man dominion over the earth. And Psalm 8 makes that big point. And man lost it to Satan and his angels, to a usurper. The Messiah regained dominion for man, and man will be associated with him in the future. The Messiah regained dominion. The, the, the Messiah regained dominion. He's going to exercise it, you'll see. Now Paul, with having said all that, anticipates two objections. If, if Christ is greater than the angels, how can that be? Because he became man which is lower than the angels, how can, become, how can he be above the angels if he became man who is lower than the angels? That's a good question. That's a good question. The other problem is if Christ died, how can he be greater than the angels? Angels don't die. Christ died. How can he be? Those are two reasonable objections. And Paul will demonstrate that it's his humiliation and suffering which is the cause for, of his exaltation and glory. His inheritance came about because of his willingness to lower himself, become man, and subject himself voluntarily, even unto death on man's behalf. And his glory then goes beyond all these things. So in chapter 2, one certain place he testified saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visit? We talked about all this time last time, Psalm 8, what is man? And the reference to man and the son of man is not talking about Adam, it's talking about because Adam was not the son of man, he was the son of God. We're talking about the son of man. And the last Adam is a title that Paul uses of Jesus Christ. And it goes on in this, he was made a little lower than the angels. Now the word there is brachus, which can mean short or small or little. It can be of place, like a short distance. It can also be of time, like a short time, like a little while. That's the way it's used here. Thou hast made him um, for a little while lower than the angels and so forth, and crowned him with glory and honor. And we went through the whole macro metacosm last time that we're in a digital simulation, something that the Bible has said all along.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit Institute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.